Welcome to this podcast by City Point Church, Redcliffe. We are so happy you could join us and pray that the following message will encourage and empower you. Well, here we are. It is my privilege to be able to share the word this morning. And um, it's my first time preaching to a group of people in five months. So um, uh, maybe by tonight's service, it'll be really sweet and smooth. But thanks for, let's just see what happens, right? But um, in this season, you know, if you're listening to this on the podcast, it's the 26th of July today. And um, it would seem as though the world has gone completely mad. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. There is financial and economic uncertainty. There's fear, division, the world is rioting. (laughs) It would seem as though the world has gone mad and we're all going, God, what is going on? What are you doing in the midst of this? Has anyone asked that question? God, what are you doing in the midst of this? Anyone? And, um, And so at the beginning of this, when we, when we went into lockdown, one of the first things that the Spirit of God said to me was, a remnant will arise out of the book of Isaiah. A remnant will arise. And, and that was a word, and I clung to that. I actually framed it and put it on my wall. And I thought that was really cool until I started to realize what a remnant meant. And, um, and so that's been a journey, a remnant. A remnant because that's all God has ever needed. He's only ever needed a small group of passionate people, and a remnant will arise. And then as we went on in the COVID season, the next word that came to us was that God is recalibrating. Anyone felt like a recalibration taking place, similar to Peter and Lauren, you know, recalibration. God is is recalibrating things, bringing things back into alignment. We all sort of had to come into a place where we assessed what was important and what we were going to do, recalibration. And then the word that underwrote all of this was, there's going to be a move of the Spirit, and it will only be preceded by a people who hunger and pursue the presence of God. So a remnant, a recalibration, and a move that's preceded by a hunger. A hunger. And so God is waking the church. He's awakening a remnant who are anticipating a move. And there is a word that's hanging in the air in the church globally. There's a a word, and that word is revival. Have you heard it? Have you heard the whispers in the spirit of this word that's lingering in the air, this revival word. And so, you know what? God has always been interested in moving. God has always been interested in attending. God has always been interested in being present. And uh, the title of my message this morning is The Pretty Little Cottage. The Pretty Little Cottage. And I want to read you a quote by C.S. Lewis that this title comes out of, and then we'll move on with the word. Let me read it to you. C.S. Lewis wrote this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping up the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? 
The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor in there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. What is God doing? He's raising up a remnant. He's recalibrating. Why? For a move. For a move. And so right through the narrative of the Bible, right through the narrative of Scripture, from cover to cover, from front to back, from generation to generation to generation, we see this thread of the intention of God. He was always interested in making a place for himself. He was always interested in making a place for himself. With the ancient Israelites who were brought out of captivity, he said to Moses, make a tent that I can dwell in. So they made a tent, a portable place that God could dwell in. And then in Jerusalem, he said to David, I want you to store up the wealth and the materials so that your son can build me a permanent temple that I can dwell in. And so he did that and they built a temple. And then we see in the New Testament, Jesus come and he then calls us his temples, that he comes and dwells inside of us. And so he's always been interested in making a place for himself. And so I have three thoughts for you this morning that are prophetic about what God is doing right now as he lays up for what is yet to come. And the first one is this. The first thought is, you are not a pretty little cottage. You are called to be a house of excellence. You're called to be a house of excellence. And so in Exodus, in 31, chapter 31 and 35, Moses is addressing the people and he's explaining who the craftsmen are going to be who make this tent. And if we can put a picture of the tent up, that's the tent out in the middle of the desert. And God specified Moses, it had to be this many cubits wide and this many cubits long and it had to have this curtain here and that curtain there and this curtain needed to be made of this fabric but this curtain needed to be made of this type of skin and that pole needed to be made of that um, material but that pole needed to be made of that material and it needed to be specifically like this and specifically like that and Moses when you make the garments for the um, priests make sure the embroidery is in this pattern using this colored thread and make sure that when you do this it's as particular as that and make sure and all the detail meticulous detail And then Moses, in both chapter 31 and 35 of Exodus, it's a similar passage, he starts to tell the people of Israel who the craftsmen are going to be. So in chapter 35, Moses told the people, the Lord has specifically chosen these two guys, but he's filled these guys with the Spirit of God, verse 31. He's filled them with the Spirit of God, living Uh, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master craftsman, an expert in working with gold and silver and bronze. He is skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and carving wood. He is a master at every craft, and the Lord has given them both the ability to teach their skill to others. The end of verse 35, they they excel as craftsmen and designers. I want to tell you, excellence is what you are. You are not a pretty little cottage. You are a house 
of excellence. And then we see after the tent was built that they finally come into the promised land and they're living in Jerusalem. And God says, hey, David, David's the king. And he starts telling David, this is the temple that I want you to build, not you, your son. The temple is going to look like this. It's going to be this many cubits and that many cubits and, and this wall and that wall and the altar is going to be made of this and covered in that and that item is going to be bronze and that item is going to be silver and that item is going to be gold. And by, by millimeter and by color and by design and by speci specific detail, God is saying, David, you're going to build this place. You're going to lay up riches so that your son can build me a place to dwell among my people. And so David does. He, 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 he gathers together all the resource and Solomon, his son, in Second Chronicles 2, says this, this must be a magnificent temple because our God is greater than all the other gods. I want to tell you, good enough in the kingdom of God is not good enough. Excellence is good enough because our God is a magnificent God. Our God is greater than all other gods. And so David stored up all the wealth and all the materials so that his son Solomon could build the temple. It was David himself who said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. We are called to be houses of excellence. And then in 1 Kings 5, we see Solomon begin to build this temple. And chapter 13 tells us that he had a labor force of 30,000 men. I mean, here in our renovations, we have about five or six each day. 30,000 excellent craftsmen filled with the Spirit of God. Why? Because he's an excellent God. Because he's an excellent and an extravagant God. And at the king's command in verse 17, they, carried, they quarried large blocks of high-quality stone just for the foundation. In the next chapter, 1 Kings 6, verse 20, it says, that Solomon overlaid the inside with solid gold, and he overlaid the altar made of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the rest of the temple's interior with solid gold. He made gold chains to protect the entrance to the most holy place. So he finished overlaying the entire temple with gold, including the altar that belonged to the most holy place. So we got a picture of the temple. Obviously an artist's impression based on what we've seen in the, what remains and, and what we read in the Bible. But they say that the gold, the sun that reflected off the gold on the roof of that temple could be seen, the reflection could be seen for miles at a distance. This temple was known by nations surrounding godless nations. This temple was known. People came from all other nations and were ministered to by the excellence of this temple. They came and they were ministered to. This really was a city on a hill. It was a landmark. It had a reputation. It was extravagant because its builders knew the God it would house was an extravagant God. And extravagance can be cause for offense in the church. 
But when our heart is worship and honor and awe, we become the woman with the alabaster jar who cannot help but come and bring the very best that she has and pour it out on her Savior and her King. You are not a pretty little cottage. You are a house of excellence, housing an excellent God. And then we read on and we watch the people's journey, God's people, and they move on from the tent to the temple. And devastatingly in their rebellion, they're exiled and scattered across the earth out of their home nation. And the temple is destroyed and lies in ruins. And as we go on, we start to encounter the prophets. And, and it's around the time of the prophets that God starts to speak to Ezekiel. And he starts to say, you know what, I'm going to bring my people back. I want to tell you that every time it's destroyed, he just starts again. He just starts again. But he was always interested in making a place for himself. And so he says to Ezekiel in chapter 43, he starts reminding Ezekiel of the details of the temple. Ezekiel, it's going to be this many cubits wide and this many cubits long. Ezekiel, it's going to be made of this and it's going to look like that. And he starts reminding the prophet as he starts showing his people, I'm bringing you back and I'm rebuilding, I'm restoring, I'm regathering. And in Ezekiel 43, he gives him the measurements, the specifications, the details. And I wrote in the margin of my Bible, which is sitting open for me this morning, because this is the heart of this message. I wrote in here, God is always interested in building a place for himself. He has always been interested in building a place for himself. He showed it to every generation, this intention and when it's lost, he starts again. He's always looking for a place to dwell. Fast forward four chapters to Ezekiel 47, and Ezekiel then has a vision of the temple finished. And this vision gives away the next intention of God. Beyond being excellent, you are not just a pretty little cottage. You are called to be a house of substance. A house of substance. Ezekiel 47, he's brought to the entrance of the temple and he sees a stream flowing out from the doorway of the temple into the world. And the man of God, the spirit of God, who's leading him through this vision, takes him into the stream and he goes ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, head deep, message all in itself. And he goes into this stream and then he returns back to the door. And verse seven, when I returned, I was surprised by the sight of many trees growing on both sides of this river. And he said to me, this river flows east through the desert into the Dead Sea. Listen, the waters of this stream make salty waters fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things wherever this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever the water flows. Fish of every kind will fill the Dead Sea as they fill the Mediterranean. Listen, fish represent generations. Fish represents a thriving of all the generations. Verse 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow along both sides of the river. The leaves of these trees will never turn brown or fall 
and there will always be fruit on their branches. There will be a new crop every month, for they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be for food, and the leaves will be for healing. We are not just pretty little cottages. We are called to be houses of substance. Living water is to flow out from who we are. And that living water is to turn what's sour sweet, is to turn what's dead to life, is to turn what's salty and cannot sustain life into purity and life-giving. And in my heart, in this season, as I've been on my face before God, I've cried out, God, give me a sweet spirit. I've cried out like David cried out, create in me a pure and a clean heart, O Lord. That I would be a, a temple where the river that flows out of me turns sour things sweet and salty things pure that it would be a place where the generations thrive, that we could honor the elders and honor the children and honor the value of life itself. That the fruit would be for food and the leaves would be for healing. That there would be fruitfulness in and out of season. In and out of season because we are planted by the living water. We are called to be houses of substance that the world can come and partake of. Not just a pretty little cottage, a house of substance, a life-giving, sustaining offering to the world. You're not just a pretty little cottage. The house God is building is very different to the one you had in mind. An excellent house a house of substance. Do you remember, cast your mind back maybe 20 years ago when I was in youth ministry and um, Planet Shakers released a song called Lift Up Your Eyes and it's straight out of Isaiah 6, the vision that Isaiah has of the temple and the presence of God in the temple. It says, lift up your eyes, all of heavens in worship, Angels rejoice and the clouds will be filled with the wonder of your name. The train of his robe fills the temple with glory. Heavenly hosts fall before him in worship, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah 6. It was in the year of when King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord and he was sitting on a lofty throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple Attending him were mighty seraphim, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. He's always been interested in making a place for himself to dwell. You are not just a pretty little cottage. You are also a house of dwelling. We are called to be houses of dwelling for the very presence of God, church, for the fearsome, awesome, 
mighty spirit of God himself. You and I are called to be dwelling places for the fearsome, awesome, mighty spirit of God himself. Not just an appendage to your life, not just an accessory or a Sunday checkbox. You and I are called to be houses of dwelling for the fearsome, awesome, mighty presence of God himself, that the train of his robe would fill the temple with glory, that the temple would be filled with smoke, and that my presence would be overwhelmed by the presence of God. You and I are called to be houses of dwelling. He dwelt with Moses. And when Moses interacted with the living God, when he came down off the mountain, he had to put a veil over his face because his face shone so brightly that it blinded the people around him. I remember the story of an evangelist interacting with people on the street. And this one person said about this evangelist whose name escapes me right now, I could see Jesus looking at me out of his eyes. Moses had to cover his face after experiencing the presence of God. And we see the prophets see him over and over in the temple in their visions. And David wrote about it in the Psalms, Psalm 122, verse 1 to 3. I was overjoyed when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. And at last we stand here inside the very gates of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, you were built as a city of praise. Listen, church. The place where God and man mingle together. Church, the awesome, fearsome, mighty spirit of God mingling with man. mingling with man. And then Jesus came, the great high priest, who went into the reserved place, the holy of holies, because in both the tent and the temple, there was a curtain that kept us out of the holy of holies. And God said, thus far and no further may you come. And behind that curtain was the very presence of God, his presence and only the high priest could go in there. And if he was not clean, it was bad news for him because he was dead instantly. No one can stand before this fearsome God if they're unclean. And so Jesus comes and by payment of his own blood goes into the reserved place, the place that you and I were not allowed to go and gives us access he paid for that access with his own life. That forbidden place is now accessible to us. When he hung on the cross, read it for yourselves. It's not just in scripture, it's in the history books. The day that Jesus Christ of Nazareth hung on a cross, the day that the drops of blood hit the soil, earthquakes happened. Earthquakes are recorded as happening when the drops of blood hit the earth. In the same moment that those drops of blood hit the earth and the earthquakes took place, that curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom supernaturally. 
not from bottom to top. It was not the work of man ascending to heaven. It was the work of heaven. Like the hand of God himself reached out and tore apart the thing that was separating you from him. The moment those drops hit the earth, that curtain tore open. And he was saying, my beloved, you've been separated from me, but because of my son, I've given you access. And he ripped that thing wide open. And if if your spirit isn't heavy enough this morning, it goes even further than that. Not only did he give us access into the place that we could never go, He moved out of the temple and into your heart. Jesus himself in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 23. I will come and make my home with you. Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you realize... That all of you together are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives, you, lives in you. This temple is holy. You are that temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you realize your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. We have treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay filled with the Spirit of heaven the treasure of heaven. 1 John 4, 12 to 13, verse 13. God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he lives in us. And so we're back to where we started. What is God doing? He's raising a remnant. He's recalibrating. Why? For a move. But a move that will only be preceded by a hungering people who understand they are the temple. For a hungering people who want to house the very presence of God himself. In 1906, in Los Angeles, a remnant of outcasts prayed in a house. They prayed for days. They prayed for months. They prayed until. We don't just pray one or two times. We pray until. They prayed for months. Until. And when the spirit broke, there was a revival like had never been seen before in Azusa Street, Los Angeles. And the pastor of that move, an outcast that they called Seymour, wrote this in his devotional in May 1907. God began to answer the very prolonged cry of a few of his hungry children. One after another became conscious as the mighty power of God came upon them. Earnest prayer had ascended for months and has been gloriously answered and greater things are yet to happen. In the last four months, I've been meeting with uh, men and women much older than me for coffee, for meals, asking them, tell me, tell me what a move of God is like. (laughs) 
my spirit knows something I've never seen. Tell me what it's like. And they sit there and they tell me the stories, the miraculous, the angelic, the healing, the salvations, the hunger, the hunger. God satisfies the hungry. He does not bother with the complacent. The hungry. They're out seven nights a week, they tell me. Small children in tow. Hungry for the things of God. Door knocking all day Saturday. Seeing salvation on Sunday. Yes, they take the free chicken that we're giving you today and they have a new person in their home and they talk about the things of God. They're hungry for a move and God moves. What is He doing? He's raising up a remnant. And I know every time I preach, I'm only preaching to a handful of people. And my prayer is give them ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. But what happens in the natural is a byproduct of what has already first transpired in the supernatural. The visible church is evidence of the invisible. The outside mirrors the inside. And he has always been interested in making a place for himself to dwell. Thank you for listening. We pray that this message empowers you to unmistakably influence your world for good and for God. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. This is the beginning of a life-changing journey. We would love to see you at one of our many City Point Church services across Brisbane and the world this Sunday. You can find out more about our service times and locations at citypointchurch.com. We're so excited to see you there.